This week, our special guest, Condides, is no stranger to the hospitality scene. With over 30 years of experience in the industry, he's built a reputation for excellence in everything he does. Alongside his wife, Kerry, as the co-owner of Didi's Waterfront Group, a family-run business, he's played a pivotal role in establishing some of Sydney's most iconic waterfront dining and event venues. Being immersed in the rich traditions and values of his Greek heritage has also deeply influenced his perspective and approach to business. So get ready to be inspired by Con's story and learn from his wealth of knowledge and experience. And we are live. Condides, thank you for joining us. Live. Thank you for having me and happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Let's get straight into it. Con, take us back as far as you can remember. What was it like growing up in the Didi's family? Look, um, I think I had a fairly typical bringing up. You know, uh, born in 1970. Um, I was born with CHD, which is an acronym for congenital heart disease. So that was a bit of a thing for mum and dad growing up. They were always kind of like wary that, um, you know, they had their son, which was diagnosed fairly early. But uh, dad came from Greece. He was a copper. He was a police officer in Greece. Wow. But he did, uh, when, he, when they lobbed in in 1966, 67, he did the good old unskilled work um, in the steelworks and Homebush, A&I. But we had an absolute bonus with my beautiful mum. Her mum was a Greek nightclub singer. The Buzukia. Yeah, the Buzukia. And had an awesome, and still has an awesome voice, my beautiful mum, Helen, and my dad, Steve. But um, mum would work those extraordinary hours. Her, her kickoff wasn't 9 to 5. It was uh, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., you know. So it was interesting that when mum and dad had to get us through those early years, just the machinations of growing up in the household with my beautiful sister, Christine. So it was just the four of us, no dog, no cat, no nothing. Dad working hard during the day and, and mum working through the night. Where about you? Surrey Hills. Surrey so Hills. we grew up in Surrey Hills. So, you know, a lot of the migrants when they first came in in the 60s and 70s would agglomerate, you know, in the late 60s and whatnot, that ethnicity, that part of the world. And then um, we eventually ended up in, um, in Dremoyne after that but uh, certainly in the early days with Surrey Hills and it was it was good but I didn't really remember too much of it being so young what I can remember vividly is I suppose my first open heart surgery was in 1976 wow, at West how old were you? well I was six and so hence that was in um, Camperdown Children's Hospital and it was like you know everyone was in the lap of the gods and I, I, a doctor back then especially for mum and dad would be seen upon as a god insofar as doing open heart surgery i had what they call back then a, a heart murmur so a little slight hole in the heart which is a layman's term of explaining it and a, a, a really minute tear in my main aortic valve Harry. wow yeah so um that was those ones back in um 1976 and uh you know i was a guest at uh, camperdown children's hospital didn't know any better obviously back in that age and that's transpired i had another open heart surgery you know, to do the valve repair when I was 29, but that was different because you understood your mortality a little bit more at 29 as opposed to age yes. six. But getting back to what you asked me, yeah, look, I uh, grew up uh, um, fairly unremarkably. Mum and dad worked hard. Um, and because of where we ended up, dad had a fish and chip shop roughly about in the mid-70s. Um, I think HOSPO became ingrained into my DNA from a long time ago, before I even knew it. Wow. So, yeah. so when you were kind of at that age, kind of five, mm -hmm. your, your parents was at nightclub at that age? and When I was five, Dad was doing the working thing at uh, the Steelworks. Yeah, at the Steelworks at A&I in Homebush. And Mum would hook into Salona back then, or the Mykonos back then. The Mykonos. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, on uh, King Street in Newtown. Uh, and the Mykonos, that was Steve Lowe's. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well done. Yeah, there's a beautiful connection there with Steve and his beautiful father, Nick. Nick, Nick Dad? I'm pretty not, sure. Not, not too sure, but I've heard uh, the stories about the Mykonos. I'm pretty sure Steve Lowe's beautiful dad was Nick. And Nick, I think, had an interest, if not owned it back then. So hence the connection there. Now, look, the different days, mid-70s. And uh, sometimes... Um, Dad would have to rattle us off in the car. We didn't know what we were doing at that age to go pick up mum at 4 a.m. in the morning. You know, wow. we were back in the car. 
and uh, you know, mum would be hooked in. You could pick up, you know, a little bit of smoke, a little bit of something was going on and whatnot. You know, smoking side? No, no. Well, in the in the car or in the Mykonos? In the in the Mykonos. Hard. It was open slaver. Like mid uh, mid seventies nightclubs, Newtown. There you go. King for Street. All the young ones watch, owned by at the home. Greeks. Oh yeah, different <laughs> days. Yeah, different to two thousand when smoking legislation came in. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, so you've got. Your mum working those uh, late hours from mm-hmm. from the from the ten pm, and your father probably still works during the day. Hundred percent. Where does that leave you and your siblings? So, um, what happened? What happened there was dad realised and mum realised. Obviously, they couldn't continue doing that, and so hence dad wanted to get into something that he could do and you know um, and manage himself. Hence the fish and chip shop at Abbotsford. So we lived on top of the fish and chip shop at Abbotsford, and then uh, dad ran the business um, underneath. Um, and so then he could start to control his own destiny somewhat and then mum got into it and whatnot and had to unfortunately back then give up the singing because you couldn't burn the candles literally on both ends fair enough yeah, fair enough so and, and how old were you when uh, your parents got the fish and chip shop seven seven years old mm, so early days early days now okay you're in primary school yeah what's Condetti's interested in were you an academic was it sport right. what was going on if you go to Abbotsford Public School, you will see 1981 school captain Condetti's. And um, to right? this day, my sister rigged the vote for sure because <laughs> I think she was doing full extortions. And she was, so my sister's 15 months younger. Uh, yeah, cool cat. Um, uh, very, very imposing in so far as her thought process and would, uh, yeah. So look, I, I think even back then, you know, I, I genuinely. Uh, I like people, you know, I, I go with the adage of, you know, um, everyone's cool unless they prove otherwise, you know, say so always benefit of the doubt, see the positivity. And I think I was like that even from the early stages, even though consciously I didn't know I was doing it, you know, I'd like to be around kids, people, whatever, older, younger. So yeah, I was, might've been a little bit popular back then. It's, it's one of those things, a school captain, that's year six. Year six. Year six. You gotta kind of be liked by the teachers 100%. and the students, yeah. and just please it. Like yeah, and then you've got a bit of sport, a bit yeah. of academics. It's just that all around the type thing. So sports. Are you into sports? That that that's a super cool kind of like pickup because I think you're 100 percent correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I held my own when it came to sports, and you know, what were you, you playing? Yeah, the round ball during the winter, and then I didn't mind cricket. You know, during the summer. You know, so it was it was awesome. So you did the Greek thing and then you did I the I did the Greek thing. thing and the Aussie thing. So it was just all good. Um, but um, that, that's, a, that's a really good pickup because obviously at that age, you know, obviously others are making decisions for you as opposed to when you get on a little bit older and you, you know, if you, ha- if you have got A, your health and then B, the aspirations to do or be a leader, then you, you're, you're back on your own terms a little bit more. No doubt. Yeah. All right. Abbotsford, school captain Condides now. Um, academics. What what subjects were you? Mathematics, English. What was going on? Um, definitely more the like. I'm. Um, I prefer not the preciseness of the physics and the chemistries and the in the mathematics. You know, I'm more kind of like uh, talk my way through a good essay in English, or you know, have a look at the modern or ancient history and get my take on things as opposed to. And um, it, it'd be interesting at times to see your teacher's take on what you would do with the literal stuff, with the literature, literature side of uh, uh, the academics as opposed to the finite side where there's a definite answer. Yes. So, yeah, that was more my go, definitely. Yeah, I could hold my own again when it came to basic stuff and whatnot, but certainly I was more akin to that. And um, it kind of like makes sense to me now, even retro thinking about it when you asked me the question, why I was more swayed by that side as opposed to the preciseness of you know, a maths where there's a definite answer. Yeah. Fair enough. And okay, so uh, age seven, parents got the fish and chip shop in Abbotsford. You're going to yes. school in Abbotsford. Are you working at all in the fish and chip shop? I'm going to say no, but certainly getting in the way, right? Sure. So, but you're sensing it when you come downstairs, what's going on, those ones. My first recollection of work would be I was about age 11, where, and we'll get to it, where mum and dad ended up down at the Sydney Rowing Club. For their first stint, and that was just getting in the way again, washing plates and copying it and all those ones. But certainly, you're getting a sense of what's going on. You know, you know, watch the bit there, watch the kid there with the coke. He's got a coke in his pocket. Those ones, all those, you know. So 
that looking after people that yes please how can i help you uh, that was getting ingrained within your dna and the hustle and bustle of yeah. that from a very very early age and again retro thinking about it it kind of like makes sense that mm. you were exposed to it from a very early age Just and what happened was ari that Mum and dad worked exceedingly hard and I was super blessed that they did so and they um, got the opportunity to go to Newington after that. So my second... GPS boy. Your GPS boy. And fortunate enough for my beautiful son Stavros to have finished there in 17 as well. So my alumni was obviously 80... Well, not obviously, but it was 87. But but they worked exceedingly hard to get me there because dad had the foresight, mum had the foresight to give what they couldn't give insofar as what they had, I beg your pardon, but they can give... Uh, their offspring a little bit of education so yeah. give every chance possible yes great school yes. great school and and growing up in abbotsford mm-hmm. um now what is it now italian pretty multicultural what was it back then look i'm going to say back then it was definitely because five dock was super close and so we had a little suburb called Rimba in between and five dock now the ethnicity with five dock was full-on italian yes which was a fantastic thing great north road five dock was a full multicultural micro ecosystem of great food buzz you know the function centers the delis and whatnot and so that would obviously come into abbotsford somewhat as well so but yeah greeks italians you know that type of ethnicity base a lot of anglo of course as it should be and would be uh back then but certainly there was a, a strong italian influence because of the five doc thing no doubt no doubt so we we, we get to high school Newington College. Boom. Um, what are you into kind of growing up from that year, year kind of seven I was, to... I was shit scared when I first started because uh, I was the only kid. I'd, so usually a progression might be that you go to a local high school from a, from a public school and, um, you know, you'd know a couple of people here and there. But I was on my pat. So, so I suppose having what I didn't know at the time, there's assets in my own little arsenal in regards to getting on with people. I said, shit, I've better start you know <laughs> mum's gone out the gate so see you later and uh, do your best yes so year seven was you know the first bit of it was it was kind of like a little bit problematic in regards to just trying to find your way and yeah. you know, what the hell's going on here and shit this is a big school and what do you mean it's a 50 meter pool are you joking like yeah you know, i couldn't i could swim but you know not very well um but it that changed pretty quickly and and uh, yeah it did change pretty quickly um because of i thought i had that well, I didn't know at the time, but again, an innate ability just to be warm around people and, you know, smash a few people on a handball court, all those ones. And so I got to understand fairly quickly that it was a pretty, pretty privileged place where I was at. So I wanted to try and make the most of it as best as I could. No doubt. And I, and I can relate. I mean, I personally went to a primary school first day at the King's School, Year 7, Blazer. Full on. The, the whole, and then the whole boys thing? Yeah. I mean, back then, Newington, all boys, right? No, 100%. It was a bit of a, bit of a shock from the primary school. Massive shock. Massive. And then, uh, yeah, I, I guess as the years go by, you adjust, you, you become a GPS boy. My first cricket game in Year 7, because uh, of summer or whatever, we had to go to Kings. Yep. And we had the old Gregory's, right? And my mum was taking me at the time to go to Kings. And I said, Mum, look at the... Look at the Gregory's in this school, Kings. It took up half the more than half the page, and they actually named the streets in the school. That's how big it was. So yeah, it's a quantum leap, hard, you know. So yeah, you felt, you know, you didn't feel honoured and humbled back then. You might have done it innately, uh, but certainly I knew back then that it was pretty. It was super cool. Yeah, let's put it that way. Beautiful, and. Um so that that year seven to twelve, are you um, are you kind of interested in business and whatnot? What were you kind of what were definitely? You kinda I, yeah, commerce and you know being you know doing a bit of a hustle, having a few side hustles here What's and the there. What's the side hustle? Oh, the side hustle was the the, the Bank of Greece, the the bank bank, of which Greece. yeah, my wallet got nicked, and I know who it was during year nine. It was a fat wallet. Remember those zip wallet, those the Velcro wallets? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and you know you in out in out. You know, you know, do what you need to do and. Um, yeah, I, there was a couple of dollars there in, uh, and it got nicked in year nine, but that's fine. I know to this day who took it and we're still kind of buddies. Did you want to let, look, okay, okay, you're still kind of buddies, <laughs> all right, he knows who he is. Mate, we're in, <laughs> we're, we're in hospitality, you've got to be buddies with adversaries as well. There yeah, you go. Yeah. But, um, cool. 
Look, no, definitely. Definitely had an interest. And because of when mum and dad did finish up back in the day, they started up in their own business down at the Sydney Rowing Club. And so I'd be working at the time as well. So it was school, work, study, school, work, study, the odd game of cricket in the, in the street or the tennis in the street, no, school, work, study, those ones. So because of the work side, I was definitely into, interested in monetizing and seeing you know, what you could do or whatever. And hence, yeah. um, commerce and economics was of interest. Back then, when it came to um, when it came to my studies, and yeah, ended up leaving Newington and then uh, doing something different at university, which was effectively land economics but applied science in um, in um, in real estate. Wow! Yeah, interesting. It so was you, interesting. You had that hustle. I mean, there's always that kind of that. There's one or two guys in each year kind of selling chocolate out of that locker. That was that was the Condides. It was kind of like I could pick your lock. Okay. And yeah, just for a small, just a small gratuity. And for the people you like, you left it up to them. It's like going into a restaurant, pay what you want. Not the best business model, but anyway. There you yeah, go. Yeah, 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 I didn't know any different at 13, 14. Good stuff. Um, yeah. All right, so you finish Newington College straight into university. Yeah, yeah. And it was no respite. So, you know, there's gap years and all those ones. Wasn't a, you know, it was a phenomenon back then, but it wasn't, you know du jour and whatnot but uh, straight into and it was kind of like it was an ex, not so much an expectation for mum and dad but they knew that I'd be working and working hard through my school years but it'd be great that if he did kick on do his own thing perhaps there were, I don't think there was ever an expectation that for mum and dad that um, he'd take on the school the business and it was by serendipity that I ended up in hospitality and we'll get to that in a second or two I suppose but yeah I went to do land economics and that was different so I don't know if you found it at King's, but going to university was kind of like, at, at school, you'd cop it hard if you didn't do your, your homework. Yes. You know, at university, they're the tutes, that's your assignments, that's your lecture, that's your timetable, rock up, no attendance. So you had to be super disciplined. And the, the massive irony I found, and I'm sure Ari, you would have heard maybe some examples of this and whatnot, some of the better students that were disciplined at high school and you know, had someone on top of them, uh, either he or she and whatnot, did really, really well. Maybe found university as a bit of a quantum leap insofar as having not having that behind them. Yes. And maybe not kicking on. So you had to find your own way. But because I think I just wanted to do what I had to do when I could do it, however I could do it, working at the same time, um, <clears throat> I think that got me through uni. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and, and growing up, you know, Leading up to university, would you go overseas much? No. No, no holidays? No. no, no holidays. No holidays. So Port Macquarie, uh, but, you know, mum and dad working seven days a week and whatnot. Um, uh, go visit my godfather who was living up there. Is one memory that I had of it when I was 10, 11, but no holidays. So wow. mum went to Greece on her pat um, in 1978 and in, ni- in 1991. And Christine and I and my sister and I went overseas, you know, back then. But, you know excuse me, that was just like, you know, wow, we're having fun, we're jumping on a plane. Okay, beautiful, there's my papu, there's my yaya, but no holidays. Holidays is, was a, a very foreign phenomena for us. We had no holidays. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. But the Greek heritage <laughs> growing up it was strong. I mean, the parents spoke Greek, English. Yeah, look, there was a bit of Greek, Greekish at, at, at home as well. I mean, mum and mum, tried to, in, not so much enforce, we didn't have the opportunity to go to Greek school. We, we had the opportunity to go to Greek school, but we did not go to Greek school. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but mum would make an effort too. So yeah. hence, I can read it and write it and whatnot at the moment. So I'm very thankful for that. And we tried to pass that on to Stavros and Georgia, our kids as well. But through it's us important. doing it, it's, it it's super important. And again, that irony now is that my daughter's now 20, my son's now 23 are saying, you know what, we didn't like it at the time, but geez, I wish you smashed us a bit harder in regards to learning it and whatnot, because what an asset to have, you know, what a great thing to have, you know, it's where you're traveling and whatnot, and just to converse with your beautiful heritage. But heritage for us was, like, you know, um, we didn't do the Greek Easter thing hard, but we did it, but it wasn't like observed to the letter of the law, the fasting and the kinonia and all those ones, only because mum and dad were doing the 100 hours and the eight days a week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. So we're in university and it was social land economics. Yeah, UTS. UTS. Yeah. Okay. How long did you last in that for? 
So it was a four-year course and it took me nigh on seven years to complete only because they wouldn't let you defer for the for two years after the fifth because um, in a row, I beg your pardon, because I deferred for two years because an opportunity arose where they actually wanted mum and dad who were in a restaurant at the time to go to Canterbury Banks and Leagues Club back in 1990. <coughs> Excuse me. And mum um, and dad had the foresight back then. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Just take a little bit of uh, ouzo. We can get the ouzo out. And when we got it. I thought that was ouzo. <coughs> um, so, um, so yeah, um, I did end up completing the course, which was great. But so I had a massive amount of um, uh, empathy, I think I'll call it back then, insofar as when I was in lectures at university to see people that were walking in, that were working, that were studying, yep. and had a family. Far out how they do it. I do two of those things, but I don't do the third one. I didn't have the family back then. Now I totally understand it and get it, but I wanted to get. It. I wanted to get it. I wanted to get the the red little stamp up there, the paper, piece of paper. But my my road led me down a different path path regarding vocation. Did university help me to be resourceful to teach me the fundamentals of land economics and whatnot? For sure and certain, it did uh, by divesting perhaps now and what I'm doing or whatever we're doing now and whatnot. But certainly back then, um, I, there was an opportunity that was had for, for us in 1990 and I just went with it. And it was pure serendipity. Um, Mum and Dad got an opportunity through the board of Canary Bankstown Leagues Club to do a restaurant at their new development there. And how old were you then? I was 20. 20 years old. 20, 1990. So born in 70, 70 model. And um, um, Dad... I remember vividly, took me to the, one of the initial meetings with who I consider now as a mentor of mine, still John Ballastie, who was the CEO at the time. And he said, John, look, I can't do it, but I've got this bloke here and, you know, we'll put our name on the door. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, boom. So um, I think Dad had an inherent trust that I, could, I worked with him inside the kitchen. And as it happened, one of my current beautiful stakeholders and best mates and um, partners, if you like, a personal partner and also to business partner is a, a friend of mine called Anthony, Anthony Costanzo, and uh, he just finished his four-year apprenticeship at the Hilton. So he went to the kitchen, I got onto the floor, 1990, May, week before Mother's Day, and a restaurant, Deedee's restaurant was born, and it just went from there. Wow. So yeah. Canterbury Leagues back, back then, is it like it was now? 100%. So back then, because of its demography back then, Ari, um, let's just say that um, uh, there was a, you know, we were in Belmore, we are in Punchbowl, we are in Lakemba, we are in a demography that, even though the ABS stats will tell you that it's a low socioeconomic back then, there was, um, there was a propensity to sort of like hit a gaming machine here and there, right? Which, uh, which allowed for an oasis within Belmore, right? And their first stage one development was the basis, the foundation of what you see there today back now in 2023. And it was it was Lux. It was Lux. And there was a restaurant there. We were on the first level. Uh, and we were trying to sell oysters, prawns, lobsters. Everyone would walk up the stairs, I'd kiss and hug because, you know, it wasn't the main go to open up a, you know, a finer style of dining sure. within that beautiful development. But it's what the club wanted. To the club's absolute um, credit, they gave us every good go at it and they understood that you know that they had um people in there in that small part of their club that they didn't have to worry about that everything was going to be tickety-boo um so anthony and i partnered up and away we went and it got busy it got busy that was i was 20 anthony was 21 and we were flying by the seat in our uh, pants we weren't into SO, you know, standard operating procedures we weren't systemizing we were just doing what we knew and the fundamentals of what we grew up with both outside and inside. And where we obviously had the deficiencies was the stuff that a lot of sort of like our guests wouldn't see would be the back of house stuff and whatnot. So we had to learn that as we went. Sure, the operations, the, the ins and outs, okay. what do we do with the money? Oh shit, you know, blah, 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 the GST came in, what do we do with that? All that What's kind that? of stuff, right? Yeah, all those <laughs> ones, you know? Fringe benefits tax came in. Oh, that was all. That was eighty five. So you know, dealing with all of that and what's an accountant going to do for us and all those ones, and then super 
super, yeah, super, super, you know. So it was, we were flying by the seat of our pants, but the intent was always super noble insofar as the end game. So we knew, both Anthony and I knew, that, you know, we had to be a little bit savvy. So, so what I'm hearing, you guys both had that old school hospitality DNA um, of, of greeting people at the door, taking them, pouring, that old school hospitality. Yeah. The foundations. Kissing and hugging people that came to the door. I mean, like by through nature, I mean, uh, a restaurant comes from you know, a restoration house, right? Back in the 1700s and whatnot. So anyone that would come up, even though I've got to learn that as a stakeholder now, your guests, you, you always hear that your guests should be number one. But I take guests as number Did close you two. Did we flick a camera on? Close yeah. two. Is that what I said? Yeah. Was it the doorbell? No, no, there's just a little uh, technology. Oh, yeah. No worries. I love technology. I got technology. Love it. There you go. <laughs> We're all good. Lovely. So I've got to learn off 30 years of business now and whatnot, the, um, and, you know, got to listen to Mr. Branson and all the rest of it. And it's, I mean, Mr. It's Branson, sincerely. we're talking. Mr. Branson as in, yeah, insofar as where your team should be number one. Yes. Because if your team's not number one, then... You know, how's it going to resonate to your guests? How's it going to resonate to your suppliers? How's it going to resonate to all the other stakeholders? But, you know, you've got to learn that. But initially, back to your question, the guest was one, two, three, on the podium, hard. Yeah. Right? Because they were paying the bills. They were the ones we need to look after. But you got to learn. It was it, It's a little bit different today, as it should be. And uh, when you say Mr. Branson, Richard Branson. Oh, yeah, you no, know, I'm saying that, you know, because you, you're listening to your people that have done it before you as yes. you're growing up. And, you know, he would definitely say back then, it's your teams that's, up, that's number one. I mean, what do you mean it's your team? Isn't it the people that are jumping on your planes or getting into your railways or buying your records back then or whatever? No, 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 it's your team. And he's right. He's very big on culture, isn't he? As he should be. As he should be. You know, the fish rots from the head and all that kind of, all those kind of sayings. So but now that our business has grown to a point where obviously it's a direct you know, kind of like of, of, of Kerry and I. So it's what culture we want to instill. It's like if you're going to say thank you to someone, really mean it. If you're going to give the bouquets and the brick bats, like so far as having a, you know, a constructive criticism kind of chat, make sure you're sincere about it. But it's culturally speaking, uh, today more so than anything, anytime, uh, it's got to be authentic and it's got to be bloody real. Yeah. If it's not, people just see through it. Yeah, yeah, so they should, Ari. So they should. Mm. Okay, so Canterbury Leagues Club. <coughs> um, you were yeah. how old? Sorry, twenty when we kicked off. Kicked off at twenty, and how long did you? We were there for nine time? years. Nine years straight. Nine years. So it was you and your partner. Yep, but Sydney Rowing Club. I don't. I think is that, that where you go with the growth the business? Yeah, are you going into the growth of the business now? Or yeah, how? yeah. So. For, for that, those nine years, it was, was it just Canary Leagues or did you have other things going on? Oh, cool. So 1996, an opportunity raised at the Sydney Rowing Club. So we did those ones. Um, so I went over to the Sydney Rowing Club. Anthony stayed at um, Belmore. Okay. And then things propelled from there because the Sydney Rowing Club was a super busy venue. Um, and then uh, Flying Fish came around in 2000. So opportunities started to... So that's number three. That's number three. And it just grew from there. But certainly, um, I was aspirational back then. I knew that I just wanted to grow the business. I know that uh, perhaps even I remember at times being at Canterbury, going, "Look, you know, this is great, but you know, there's got to be more out there. You know, I, you know, I want to do more. You know, I want to be busy all the time." And when you say grow, um, well, mm. I mean, what does grow mean to you? Are we talking revenue? Are we talking uh, what, what? What does that mean to you when yeah. you're saying grow? No, it's a great question. I, to me, what it means is taking something and valuating, or maybe I can do it a bit differently, or I'm seeing something that maybe mightn't be at its full potential. Um, and yeah, sure, you, you know, you might, that might come across as if you've got tickets on yourself, but you've got to back yourself, right? And then, especially back then, I'd have five, six years of grind, like real grind. So for me, growth is valuating, it's... Um, providing resource, it's getting great people around you so you can, so you can facilitate and, make, and allow you to do what you want to do. And also too, I think I found out early on, Ari, that I was good at certain things and maybe I wasn't 
So I'm a big picture. And I, th I think big picture, I always say it, is a little bit easier, right? Because you need to have people with you along the journey that can dot those I's and cross those T's. Yes. That can check you. That can rebut you. That can give you a qualified no. They, uh, no, no, yes, 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 yes. Oh, great idea, great idea. Come on, yeah, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. Because that's BS. Right? It's good to have a bit of pushback. You know? Yeah. As long as it's coming from a good place. No doubt. Because I'll never say no to anyone that's within our team without qualification. I'll say no to you because of X, Y, Z. Just saying no for no sake is BS. Sure. And so now we've got three uh, waterfront, not well, not waterfront, no. but three seafood yeah, yeah, yeah. restaurants. Yeah. So you, you've stuck to seafood here. Mm -hmm. Why seafood? Uh, again, within the heritage, within the day, it was just serendipity, the opportunity for mum and dad. Uh, it was there. I knew it. Even if I thought I, you know, maybe didn't know it, I really did know it. You know, I knew how to prepare it. I knew how to respect it. I knew how to plate it. I knew how to garnish it. You know, so uh, it's just the way it fell. And so I believe I liked it as well. I liked it. You know? Yeah, but that, that step, I mean, flying fish in the casino, that's the real McCoy. What, I mean, it was a casino well, back then? Well, flying fish originally was at James Bay Wharf. James so Bay Wharf. this was a site. I remember going to um, uh, uh, something in the Lyric Theatre and I remember stopping outside of James Bay Wharf and saying, Kerry, see down there, we're going to put a restaurant down there. And she looked at me like, yeah, you're, you are dead set crazy. But um, it was an opportunity that arose because of a mate that I went to uni with, said, Con, come and have a look at this site, da 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 Apparently other operators had looked at it, so on and so forth. But it was a wonderful site. And, um, and to this day, which we still operate it with a different offer. And um, yeah, it was a bit ballsy. It was a bit of a crack. Uh, but uh, we got a great team around us back then. And mind you, this was, by the time we saw it, to the time it opened, it was three years to get the DA through and do all the blah, blah, blah. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, tough. And it put Kerry and I, I don't mind saying this publicly, it put us under the pump uh, financially. It was a tough time. Kerry's dad had just passed away as wow. well, so it was a tough time. Wow. Um, I mean, because now you've gone from... Uh, I mean, Jones Bay Wharf, the rent, the spaces, the renovations, mm -hmm. the, it's just a whole kettle, different kettle of fish, isn't it? Oh, indeed. And that's why I say to, it put us under the pump financially, which leads to different things mentally. And we'd just recently been married. We got married in 1998. So how old were you? When I got married, 28. 28. It's a good, good age, isn't it, Ari? Yeah. 28, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, you know, uh, but I knew um, I'd, 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 I'd been together with Kerry Nett then for about five years or so, and I knew that Kerry was just my absolute soulmate, uh, someone that could we could live this journey with together and it would support me um, and vice versa. And, and to this day, you know, um, it's only the one lottery you need to win in life, someone told me, and they were 100% correct. You need your health. Health yeah. is the absolute covenant, right, and to allow you to do things and whatnot. But over and above that, if you've got someone with you that can share your journey with you, it's the absolute best thing. And hence, you know, we just run off each other. You know, there's full simpatical between us, but uh, big picture, smaller picture, it works. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I was told that by a mate the other day, you know, finding, you know, someone in life, you know, are they going to support the dream mm. and be there? Such a big thing. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, like it sounds like altruistic and it sounds like, you know, you know, share the love and all the rest of it. But um, Kerry knew what I was doing when we met, you know. So Kerry knew that and sort of like would, as opposed to maybe meeting someone that, you know, sort of like, oh, okay, what's this all about and whatnot. But it certainly if, you know, and it's hard work, right? You know, you've got to, you know, give, take, compromise, all the rest of it, you know, keep the spark up and all the rest, especially after, you know, so many years. But um, to have someone to share that with you, the wins and the losses, and yeah. we've had losses, right? We've, you know, we've had losses, and there's more aside from when you asked me about why seafood, why you stick to seafood. Yes. A lot of that came because I swayed from our unique selling proposition, which was waterfront dining with seafood. Anyway, that's a different story, uh, but uh, yeah, but one you can learn from. But it's amazing to be able to share that with you, with someone. Amazing. So, yeah. so 29 years old, flying fish. That's a, that's a bit of a break, bit of a step. Yeah, bit of a Jones step. Bay. And then tell us about that next kind of five-year period. Well, that was the marquee soccer player within the team. So, you know, you that opened, that was a door opener. 
So flying fish in regards to having that within your arsenal and in regards to your business, that was yep. the absolute, so opportunities would come aplenty. Is it the people that would eat there or how does that work? Oh, look, it works um, not only the guests that you'd have, but also to people that would know around, like there'd be prospects that would be saying like, oh, hey, there's this restaurant's going to kind of okay there. Wouldn't it be good to have a flying fish in Fiji? So that actually came about. So it was an opportunity from 2008 to 2018. So we were there for 10 years where someone dined there, just happened to be the vice president of the time of what they called back then Starwood, um, which owned the Sheridan back in the day, which is a married owned property at the moment. Would you like to do? And to the credit of the team, they went 4,000K away and they replicated what we did there by way of food in dinner around Fiji. So opportunities were plenty. Wow. I bet you've hosted some uh, high-profile individuals there. Oh, yeah, but I'm not at liberty to divulge. <laughs> yeah, the NDAs that you signed. Oh, we've... Wow. Yeah, yeah that, that's all rubbish. But, um, yeah, we have. But, you know, like, I think the best thing about hosting uh, stars, celebrities, people of note, is that if the beautiful hospitality venue or wherever they go to, treat them like just normal humans and whatever and no airs and graces and no rolling out the red carpet boom and that's the this you know that's the kind of like next level kind of like thinking when it comes to hospitality when it comes to dealing with whomever you're dealing with that everyone is the same yeah everyone's the same yeah yeah and as it should be so we, yeah we have we have I, I've got um I can say this to you so, um, name escapes me, but she's beautiful. Um, oh, God, she's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And she was married to a beautiful bloke, too. He was a Pakistani origin. Look like Imran Khan. Um, it'll come to me. Um, married, uh, engaged to Shane Warren, who recently passed away. Liz Hurley. Liz Hurley. So, but before I knew it, right, three, three or four guys, they're flying fish, coming in, sort of looking around, slicing out. Oh, g'day, hi. Can I help you at all? Yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, we're just um, looking. There's someone that wants to come in to find fish. And I said, yeah, no problem at all. Anyway, um, they were sussing the place out to see entry and whatnot. Anyway, uh, they, they said, where's your back entrance? I said, through the kitchen, through here, uh, out to the landing dock. All right, no problem. Um, have you heard? We've got a special VIP guest coming, um, and, they're gonna, and they're going to want to come through here. I said, oh. I mean, they're going to come through here. <laughs> the front door, beautiful front door. Anyway, as it happened, we eventually got them and convinced them to bring them in through the front door. Did the bottom side of the restaurant kind of like stop a little bit when they saw Liz Hurley come in with her beautiful husband at the time, the name escapes me, and he, he was a good-looking dude and whatnot in full class and whatnot? Yes, it did. And we took them upstairs and they had a beautiful dining experience, but treat them normally. Uh, Miss Hurley, thank you for choosing Flying Fish and your visit here to Australia. Thank you for having me. Was her response? I said, "Boom, okay, thank you. Get out the get out the mud crabs, and away you go." And we got out the mud crabs, and she went hell for leather, mate. It was like you know, it was like you and I just having a crack. It was good. Treat I love it. Yeah, as it should be. And just wrapping my head around this, it, it, I'm, I've eaten at Flying Fish a number of times. Was it the Jones Bay Wharf same thing? It was the same kind of like level. So Flying Fish, yeah, Flying Fish down at um, uh, Jones Bay Wharf was there for 16, 17 years, part of a beautiful heritage wharf and whatnot. And again, an opportunity arose um, back in 2017 where we got asked the question, Would you? is this a transportable brand? It's been proven as a transportable brand because it did 10 years in in Fiji, and I said, yes, it is. Oh, would you like to have a look at a space up in this? And mind you, we were we had a hospitality venue in the Star. We've been tenants of the Star now for nine on 12, 13 years, right? We're flying fish and chips. So we looked at the space and we moved it. So flying fish and chips, that's the one. It's a, it's a quick service restaurant yes. that goes off its tree when you know we're gonna go see whatever at the Lyric Theatre, and it's great. It's great, it's in the cafe court there, and just smashes it out. So we used, the brand alignment with Flying Fish, but obviously knocked it down a few runs by adding the chips, you know? So it's just kind of like a sick, quick service restaurant model, which has been great. Beautiful. Yeah. So that, I mean, that 30 to 35, I mean, you had that, was there any other venues kind of going on during yeah. that time? Yeah, so Deck House came about. In, uh, Deck House, yeah, Deck that's House. iconic. Yeah, it's pretty cool, it's pretty cool. That, that, that's a Sydney Federation Trust Authority site, so it's a federal government site. Uh, we're blessed enough there to have the Oatley family there aligned with us as well. And uh, we built that back in 2010. It was the only venue out of the 10 that we've got that we kept open during COVID. 
And it, we used it as a connectivity base, right? Not only for the local community, which was awesome, um, and to do what we needed to do with takeaways and cocktails and blah, 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 you know, within the letter of the law, but for our teams. So our teams would come down. Where it was really hard, Ari, was with the visa kids. They're the ones that didn't get back home. They had to stay. That job saver and job keeper were absolute unbelievable initiatives from the federal and state governments in regards to keeping us all going. But they didn't extend to our uh, visa uh, team members. So they'd come in, do their seven-day meal plan, get... You know, if you want to get pierced, get pierced. The guys from Flying Fisher come in. The guys from View by Sydney come in. You know, and just was a connectivity thing. And it held us in fairly good stead when we came out of it because wow. of our retention for our team members. And it just gets back to Kerry and I just treating people like family. Yeah. Just treating people like anyone would walking into our home. Yeah. Do what you need to do. All right, you know, there's, there's levels. But do what you need to do just to connect. And tell me, um, yep. one thing from... Uh, uh, work with a number uh, quite a few hospitality owners they have one venue they're pulling their hair out um out of that one mm-hmm. venue mm-hmm. and then we see uh you know someone Didi's group and they've got five plus venues uh, how do you manage i mean th- th- there's so many moving parts i mean i hear people the biggest complaint i hear from hospitality owners can't get good people it's like number one we here. Um, and then it's uh, all the moving parts. How, how do you do it? So I, um, I, I knew with that aspiration side back in 2010-11 that we wanted to grow and value-add, what we were talking about before. But I knew also too that I need to resource our back end, not our front end, not what wine you choose, not what fish it is, not what prawn it is. It's our back end. So back in the day, it was a COO. So Kerry and I took on a COO, a chief operating officer back then, that would be... A, a layer, if you like, between Con and Kerry. So uh, Lisa back then would oversee all the other parts, the venue manager parts. And with the COO came someone that could do the marketing and do the admin. So we're talking about resourcing the back end to facilitate for growth. Because we can't forget to this day that Australia is the most expensive country, certainly in hospitality, right? Is that right? Yeah, because we're number one. We're gold. We have to bow and get the gold medal for labour. We've got the Scandinavians, the Germans beat, right? Occupancy costs or rents, if you like, we're in the top 10. You know, there's a place called Tokyo, there's a place called New York, there's a few other places that got us covered, but top 10, right? Utilities, we're in the top five, right? So just with those things alone, aside from your compliance with your, WH, your workplace health and safety stuff and whatnot, over and above that, we are the most expensive country in the world to do business in. And it's the adherence now to the labour side. So labour in our industry is the, most, is the number one cost. But it's not only by way of numerics the number one cost, but also too by way of maintaining. So for instance, anything over and above a 38-hour week needs to get paid for, so on and so forth. Unless your salary obviously can, if you don't ex- extrapolate back to per hourly rate. So we are, if you don't have a unique selling proposition, right? if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not pragmatic in your passion for hospitality, you're not making money in Australia. It's this, and it's going to get even more intense. The scrutiny is going to get even more higher. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing because, I mean, part of the reason why I'm on Instagram, Ari, at the moment is to try and keep up with what's going on in our wonderful industry because the amount of openings, the amount of beautiful high street restaurants, the fantastic registered clubs, what they're doing because they're coming to the fore now, a sleeping giant. I've been calling registered clubs a sleeping giant now for about the last 10, 15 years. Registered clubs? Yeah, registered clubs. So registered clubs, Cabraval, Diggers, uh, Sydney Rowing Club, yes. um, all the great clubs that are out there, Rudy, I mean, not, don't call it Rudy Hill, I so call it West HQ, sorry, Richard. Um, shout so, out to Richard. Uh, what's that? Shout out to Richard. Shout out to Richard Errington, <laughs> God bless him. Um, I'm 80 spend 130 million out there with the Coliseum out there, all paid for by that club, not one cent of government funding, but anyway, let's move on. So yeah, they're coming to the fore, registered clubs. And I mean, let's, and if you're looking at um, licensed hotels at the moment, I mean, Maryvale with 6,000 team members, absolute world-class in what they do, industry best practice in what they do, um, are just unreal, you know, aside from, Iris, aside from Oscars, aside from Laundy, aside from... So they're all coming to the fore in hospitality. But if you're not pragmatic about your passion, if you're not real about your passion, you're not making money. 
And that's those PPs are the things that I say to my team members all the time. Have the passion. It's in you. It's you can't get that passion. If you've got it, it's, it's in, in you. Blood. It's in you. If you've got it. Not everyone's got it. You you within your team, you also need your people that can switch off and nine to five. Yeah, you need that. I mean, you want that as well with need. Need is different, but you, you want to have those kind of people within your team as well because they keep it real as well. Not everyone's got the passion for it, but if you have got the passion like Kerry and I, it needs to be programmed. But, in, I mean, in your case, I mean, when you've got multiple venues yes. and um, there's only one Kerry, there's mm. only one Con, yeah. and there's how many venues right now? Ten. It's ten yeah. venues because I, I can relate, you know, myself, I've got my one little company mm. and myself, I can kind of get and, and, and face, you know, a lot of things, but... I mean, now you're just on a different level because you you can't face every customer. Yeah. So, so how do you keep the, 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 the KerryCon DNA transpiring across 10 venues to all the team members to, to keep track of all that? How? I thank my son for it. And he was born in 2000. And what I mean by that is that when Stavros was born, I said to Kerry, Kerry, you're not going to see me for two or three years, maybe four. She goes, good. Maybe four. <laughs> what do you mean? So, so I learned back then and I learned of my father who didn't watch me grow up, right? And my mum who didn't watch me grow up per se, insofar as, you know, doing all the, you know, extracurricular stuff, is that I've got to go out there and start systemising if I want to grow. So I started doing my own thing, writing things down, getting SOP, standard operating procedures, doing all those ones so that I could give that to a COO. So I could give that to our venue managers. So I could... Make sure that when you employ someone to do a job, let them do their job, Ari. So this yes. is part of the linchpin. Let them do their job. Resource them to do their job because you can't do your job unless you've got the right equipment, the right resources, the right IT, the right whatever. And the most important thing is do not undermine. Take the good with the bad. Right? Take the brick bats with the bouquets. Be genuine if you have to have the constructive kind of like chat. But do not undermine because then all that house of cards is going to fall. And getting back to my pragmatic um, passion is that I'm not a disruptor in the industry by any stretch of the imagination, right? I've got to learn from great, and we've got I've got great colleagues in the industry that I learn from every single day. But the one thing that I've tended to try and look at in hospitality is I wouldn't call it a widget because a widget is something that you get taught in economics and whatnot. It's a product, a unit, right, and whatnot. But I look at it close to that, that hospitality is that if you want to have multi-venues. And take your margin. You don't always get it. And guess what? You have some losses sometime. But if you're happy to consistently just keep it to a margin and allow for the inefficiencies that will, take, that will happen in your business, as long as they don't get to a level where you have to start getting forensic, then go with it. If you want to scale. If you don't, stay with one. Ari and Con in the business. Do what we need to do, um, net out the way we want to net out and have the work-life balance that you want. Nothing wrong with having one business, especially a successful one, and then divesting in whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to, whether it's on yourself, whether it's property, whether it's shares, whether it's crypto, whether it's whatever. Travel, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Because we're only here for apparently now a little bit longer, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, who knows. When you get there, you may be 110, who knows. But yeah, that, that's my take on scale, yeah. those fundamentals. One thing when I think about hospitality is, okay, you know, these days you have the online world and with the online world, you can start a business for zero dollars, zero infrastructure, you create a website, the drop shipping these days, but as a hospitality owner, you wanna open up a venue, you have to drop a lot of money with a lot of, a lot of risk. How have you, over the years with all these venues I'm, I'm guessing you've taken some punts some i'm going to renovate this i'm going to go all in and how do you deal with all that 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 risk coping with it all blows my mind it's a great question like you, the first thing that you said was no dollars when it comes to um starting up a business online yes. i think what people tend to to dissuade from or go away from is the opportunity cost of your time. So even if you are going to start a business online and whatnot, there is the op cost of your time. Right? Yes. So there's a cost there, right? But the biggest challenge I find, and to this day, Ari, is that we, if people are going to smash a million bucks into a refurbishment and whatnot, is understanding the difference between net as a net cost and margin 
a gross take. So for instance, I know of some instances where um, people would work out their return on investment on a million dollar cost for a million dollar gross. I mean, that's just you know, not right. I could say effing dumb, but it's not right, right? So it's understanding that and then working out when and how you're going to get your return on investment because your risks need to have to be calculated. Now, early in the day is the difference between, for some people, unfortunately, bankruptcy and prosperity because you need an element of luck. If you're going in blind, when I was at 25, 28, where I didn't know the fundamentals of what I'd do now, there'd be many things I would do differently. So today, it's working out what your return on investment would be. Back then, there's an element of luck and backing yourself, backing what you do so that you can get that income to net off that cost. And I find that to this day that people would equate a, uh, a net cost with a gross take and that's unbelievably wrong yeah so much respect to you know those hospitality owners that they go all in and and they, sure. they put it all on the line and and that risk it's ballsy mm-hmm. it's ballsy that must be scary and it must it, how can it not have an effect on your health how can it not have effect when you go all in everything you've worked for that's absolutely crazy and you know you talk about r- return of investment um opening up a venue how do you how do you look at that i mean in in hospitality i mean there's always that chance you open Mm -hmm. up a venue and people just not dig in the is it location is it the Mm. how do you how do you look at that yeah no great question look we've had two look it's all well and good to talk about you know 10 venues and 450 team members and you know uh, what great venues we have and we do and we're very blessed to have them but we've also had some losses too so when we strayed from our unique selling proposition, we did a re- wonderful restaurant called Celery Man back in 2017. And we also ended up down at Miranda um, at Westfields as well back in 2014, I think it was with the Italian kitchen. Um, and I think we just deviated from what we do really, really well insofar as unique selling propositions. But getting back to, so so for instance, representation back in the day, back in 2014, that we take, say for instance, $4 million top line at the Italian kitchen and whatnot, we were nowhere near it. And we didn't have control over, whilst we knew how many other restaurants were there, there was just too many there. So positioning of where you're gonna be sure. is super important. And mind you, there's only 26 million Aussies out there, right? So our scale, our market is fairly small when you think about it, given how many hospitality venues we have. So to try and work out, a bit of advice if you like now would be that if you are, if, we're, if someone's listening to this and they wanted to invest their money and it wasn't, and it was their money, not someone else's, I suppose maybe sometimes for some people it's someone else's money even puts you more under the pump and for other people maybe not as much. But it's about making sure that the placement of your business has, you give it every chance for it to prosper. Is there too much hospitality around you and then people will say to you well competition is a good thing con yeah it is if you had 340 million americans oh i beg your pardon people in the us or whatever but not in odds in odds it's about particular placement especially for hospitality now it's interesting isn't it and, Super and, and for, for all those you know individuals you would have had it yourself it could have been one cafe out in earlwood that when they first opened 10 years ago it might have been three baristas and then 10 years later, there's 16 baristas, but not 16 times the population. Mm-hmm. So the, the, that you'd be probably juggling too. You know, you might have a great venue, but just constant venues just overpopulating. Yeah, I think what we'll find now in hospitality um, is that the scrutiny on hospitality will get greater and greater. The systems will get more and more transparent. Uh, hence, the better brands, the better operators will always flourish, but there'll be dilution. So hence, a really good operator will dilute the market. And then perhaps some of the old school practices that once existed will have to dissipate and go. And that's where you'll see the attrition. That's where you'll see, unfortunately, um, shops closing, right? Because of that very reason. So if you don't have the back end, if you don't have the resource, and like I said, even if we're owned operators, Ari, and we're doing a really, really good thing and we're just divesting out of perhaps hopefully profit that we're making, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But your product now has to resonate. And it doesn't matter where it's placed, whether it's north, south, east, or west, 
it'll have to resonate because our guest, our customer, our clientele is a whole lot smarter, a whole lot more versed, and their expectation is a whole lot higher than what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I'm not knocking 10, 15, 20 years ago, but there's something called the World Wide Web, there's something called MasterChef, there's something called Gordon doing his thing, all those ones, that has educated our guests so much more. And it's a good thing. Keeps everyone on, its toes, on their toes. Yeah, interesting. I feel like, um, actually we'll hit that remote for the back screen. Um, I feel like um, we've just got deep in a conversation on the economics in hospitality. Oh, no, no, no. I'll oh, carry away for a second. <laughs> keep running right. off about it. Let's rewind. Condidis. He's boring. How do you uh, juggle? Um, well, we've got, uh, you know, eight plus venues mm. and then your personal life. You've got family. Yeah. You've got adventures. Yeah. You've got a little trip. You've got a thing in your life. How do you do all that? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, it gets back to, unfortunately, oh, I won't get back into the economics of it. It's get back to my philosophy of running the business and making the distinction with the business and the personal. Having said that, the irony or the or the counterintuitive part is that our, our hospitality venues are, are run by essentially a husband and wife team, right? So um, we're very, very careful, Kerry and I, in regards to Brent at home, especially once the kids were there. Now we've got no kids at home, so they've both moved out. <coughs> so, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I won't say to you that we don't talk about work at home. We do, but we keep it real. We do keep it real. And we talk about different aspects of it. So I'll try and keep to the big picture and Kerry will keep me real with the micro. Um, we we want to travel and we have traveled, thankfully. And because we built the business up and then when our COO became CEO, what what the CEO gave us, what Lisa gave us back then was time. And time's invaluable. And, that's, and so those business practices, so Lisa's no longer with us, she's um, running another beautiful uh, hospitality company. Um, uh, those business practices have stayed to this very day. And so I think that, you know, that you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self, you know, actualization or whatever it's called right at the peak. For mine, having flexibility in time, right, is where it's at. So if you're able to get to that level where you can do, within reason, what you want to do when you want to do it, which means your own personal life, being able to spend time with your partner, whether it's reading a book or just talking whatever, having a drink, whatever, that's where it's at. Time to switch off. Yeah, and that's a conditioning of the mindset. You know, that's that's a throwaway line, switch off, because people say they can switch off, right? I don't know what that means, but it obviously means different things to different people. But unless you really work and be thoughtful and mindful about doing it, I don't actually think it's a thing unless you work on it. Yeah. If you're within your own business and all those ones, you've got to really condition it. Because if you don't, Ari, then it's not fair on your partner. It's yeah. not fair on your kids. It's not fair on whoever. It doesn't matter. It's not even fair in the conversation that you're having now. Like if I'm looking over your shoulder, if I've got angle, if I'm thinking about work and whatnot, or not switched off, that's bullshit. Mm. You know, you've got to be in the moment and that means a conditioning of the mindset. It's as simple as that. And is it easy to do? The answer is no. You know, the answer is no. You've got to work at it. Yeah. No, very good, very good. So, this present, it's mm. the uh, 29th of March. Where's Didi's group at? What, what, what? Look, I think Didi's group will continue to grow. I think um, it's done great things. We've got great people around us who want to take the business. The succession planning, um, will my son want to come on board? He wants to do other things. And if he does decide to tap on the door and say, Dad, let's have a look at the biz, or Mum, let's have a look at the biz because Mum's got more idea than Dad, um, let's have a look at it with him. Uh, whether my daughter wants to tap me on the shoulder who's studying down in Canberra, that might be where it's at. But certainly if we're going to be doing different things, it'll be on the water. It'll be to do some kind of thing aligned with seafood, but certainly from a business point of view, it's got the fundamentals for it to grow. And hence, let it grow, let it flourish, but be pragmatic about it. And when we say grow, we're talking about are we talking about opening more venues. We're we... talking about value adding, perhaps to different sites that might, you know, want to have a Didi's Waterfront Group venue there. We're also blessed in this beautiful country of having some awesome, awesome other operators as well. So you know, um, whether or not we're aspirational and want to grow, the answer is definitely yes. 
can we? Yeah, the emphasis is definitely yes. But I think you get a little bit more... Um, I think with the people around us at the moment that have got uh, maybe perhaps the fire burning a little bit brighter and greater, they might be steering us towards directions that you know we will look at definitely, but be pragmatic about. But yeah, we're 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 prime for growth. No, very good. Was that? Let's uh, let's let's crack a nozzle. Let's crack a nozzle. Let's do a little little spinaki. Let's crack a nozzle. It's, crack a it's ten thirty in the morning. It's, Why not? Uh, we're Why overdue. Not? We're, we're, we're overdue. We're uh, we're nice and deep in that uh, nice and deep in that chat. Um, Condidis. Yes. What's your definition of success? Yeah, like I said before, having flexibility, having time, having your health is something you can't control per se. I'm a heart kid. I'm a I'm, I'm lucky enough to be um, um, an advocate for Heart Research Australia and Heart Kids. Heart Kids is awesome. I'll tell you why. Because they're an advocacy and they, if, I, if Heart Kids was around, Heart Kids New South Wales and Australia was around back in 1976 when mum and dad were around and they could explain that your son's going to have open heart surgery and they can explain the intricacies of it and whatnot um, and be around a family unit. Because for the person that's doing the operation, as you know, right, um, it's a little bit different. Thanks, mate. Here we are. That's a nice Here little pour. Cheers. Like that. Mate, I was trying to yeah, be deep then. But anyway, go, go to the ears, um, I'll take a sip. It's part of it. Mm. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. That little stuff right now. How good. Chicken back. Could you just knock up a bit of octopus for me? <laughs> yeah. And um, um, so, yeah. So advocate for both of those organisations, lucky enough back in 2016 without you know, blowing trumpets and whatnot to walk from, where did we walk from? Wollongong to Woolwich. And it was fully, fully done, you know, police, the works, the support crew and whatnot, raised 100K. And what they're doing in that space for hearts at the moment is awesome. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that obviously there's awesome charities out there. So my point about all of that is that Kerry and, our, uh, Kerry and I are in a position to give back. And whilst, whilst it's most probably the easiest thing that you can write a check, uh, but what drives me is that you give some time to be an advocate, to do things under the radar. It doesn't have to be overt. It doesn't have to be corporate social responsibility. Um, it doesn't always need to align with your business as well. But if you can give back, I think for me, um, that's a pretty cool thing. Because I'm only on this earth for another, what, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, whatever. <laughs> Depends on the user, right? That's right. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, do those ones. That, for me, is a signal of that you're kind of cool. Having the family unit around you is an absolute covenant and wh whatever that family looks like to different people, whatever that is, um, that's super cool. Having people around you that, you know, that you admire, that you love, that love you back and those ones. Um, and yeah, time, just having time and flexibility to do what you want to do. And, you know, obviously that's compromise at times, there's things that you have to do. Um, but those three things are most, probably the most important. And the Heart Kids thing and the Heart Research Australia thing is pretty important to me because I've got a vested interest because I'm a heart kid and I was born with it. So it's time to give back it's in whatever cool. way, shape or form that is, however that yeah, yeah. Advice. And mm. one piece of advice. That is those good. Burns a little bit. Oh, I like a little bit of burning. <laughs> That's it. A bit of burning is good. Now, one piece of advice you'd give 10-year-old Condides, looking back, what would it be? Mm. Uh, for me, I've workshopped this before, and for me, it's okay to say no. Because my immediate default for everything would be, yep, yep, yes, 100%, yep, no, go extra, no, you want one, have two, what are you doing, da-da-da, one Coke, have the crate, what are you, it's okay to say no, it's okay to pair back, it's okay to just, you know, as long as it's qualified, as long as it comes from a good place, it's okay to say no. Because I was brought up saying, yep, yes, 100%, Hola Mesa, let's go, yes, yes, yes. It's okay to say no. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow. And I feel like being uh, in and around the hospitality industry, um, you know, from the outside, the way I see it, knowing you for a couple of years and knowing other hospitality owners, 
Um, you're a bit of a stereotype breaker. When I say that, it's, you know, working alongside many hospitality owners, um, you know, I, I find it's very savage in the hospitality world in regards to everything from haggling to deals and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, coming across yourself, I think with those, what I'm hearing growing up with those family values um, and coming from a great place, um, you know, just that kindness and zero ego in the way you approach everything. Um, you know, that, that's that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's, mm. one, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, being a fellow Greek in the uh, you know, Greek community in Australia, you know, we've got yourself and uh, when we think of Condides, it's, we say a thing called, you know, he's one that's of us. Nice. We're, we're proud. Yeah. We're proud. Um, you, you, you've done absolutely uh, amazing and, and the giving back and the expanding and all doing that, again, zero ego with a kind heart. I remember Rewind, uh, you know, about six years ago uh, when I first started this business, I came to, uh, it, it sticks out in my head, it came, came out to the water girl out in Abbotsford and as soon as I got there, you, you ran out and you said, can I get you a coffee? And I thought you were going to order somebody and you quickly ran behind the counter and you started making a coffee by yourself and I thought, oh my God, no, no, Con, please, please, to, you know, but that, that hospitality, yeah, even with that growth, you've, that, that DNA is still there. Good old hospitality, uh, yeah. which is amazing. So, uh, Con, it was a great chat. That's Yamas. We've got Yamas. a little bit of Uzo left. Yeah, no, that's going that's down the hatch. It's a great yeah, chat, yeah. Con. Yeah. Thank thanks, you so thanks much. Thanks for having me. For, for coming on. And happy birthday. Thank you.